So it's February 25th, 2009 in Auckland, and we're going over Bhagavad Gita, chapter 10, text 20 through 42. So first we can read them together. Everybody ready? Everybody have a Bhagavad Gita? 1020. In this book, it's page 470. What Krishna is doing here is he's going to list how he's the essence of everything, which is very much what he listed in the seventh chapter. And he's also going to list categories of things and say how the best item in that category represents him. Okay, text 20. I am the super soul. Everyone together. I am the super soul, O Arjuna, seated in the hearts of all living entities. I am the beginning, the middle, and the end of all beings. Of the Adichas, I am Vishnu. Of lights, I am the radiant sun. Of the Maruts, I am Marichi. And among the stars, I am the moon. Of the Vedas, I am the Samaveda. Of the demigods, I am Indra, the king of heaven. Of the senses, I am the mind. And of living beings, I am the living force, consciousness. Of all the Rudras, I am Lord Shiva. Of the Yakshas and Rakshasas, I am the lord of wealth, Kuvera. Of the Vasus, I am fire, Agni. And of mountains, I am Meru. Of priests, O Arjuna, know me to be the chief, Brahaspati. Of generals, I am Kartikeya, and of bodies of water, I am the ocean. Of the great sages, I am Brigu. Of vibrations, I am the transcendental Om. Of sacrifices, I am the chanting of the holy names, Japa. And of immovable things, I am the Himalayas. Of all trees, I am the Banyan tree. And of the sages among the demigods, I am Narada. Of the Gandharvas, I am Chitrarata. And among perfected beings, I am the sage Kapila. Of horses, know me to be Uchashrava, produced during the churning of the ocean for nectar. Of lordly elephants, I am Iravata, and among men, I am the monarch. Of weapons, I am the thunderbolt. Among cows, I am the Surabi. Of causes for procreation, I am Kandarpa, the cause of love. And of serpents, I am Vasuki. Of the many-hooded Nagas, I am Ananta, and among the aquatics, I am the demigod Varuna. Of departed ancestors, I am Aryama, and among the dispensers of law, I am Yama, the lord of death. Among the Daiti demons, I am the devoted Pralada. Among Sadurs, I am Time. Among beasts, I am the lion. And among birds, I am Garuda. Of purifiers, I am the wind. Of wielders of weapons, I am Ram. Of fishes, I am the shark. And of flowing rivers, I am the Ganges. Of all creations, I am the beginning and the end and also the middle, O Arjuna. Of all sciences, I am the spiritual science of the self. And among logicians, I am the conclusive truth. Of letters, I am the letter A. And among compound words, I am the dual compound. I am also inexhaustible time, and of creators I am Brahma. I am all-devouring death, and I am the generating principle of all that is yet to be. Among women, I am fame, fortune, fine speech, memory, intelligence, steadfastness, and patience. Of the hymns in the Samaveda, I am the Brihatsama, and of poetry, I am the Gayatri. Of months, I am Margashirsha, November, December, and of seasons, I am flower-bearing spring. I am also the gambling of cheats, and of the splendid I am splendor. I am victory, I am adventure, and I am the strength of the strong. Of the descendants of Rishni, I am Vasudeva, and of the Pandavas, I am Arjuna. Of the sages, I am Vyasa, and among great thinkers, I am Ushna. Among all means of suppressing lawlessness, I am punishment, and of those who seek victory, I am morality. Of secret things, I am silence, and of the wise, I am wisdom. Furthermore, O Arjuna, I am the generating seed of all existences, there is no being, moving or non-moving, that can exist without me. Almighty conqueror of enemies, there is no end to my divine manifestations. What I have spoken to you is but a mere indication of my infinite opulences. 
Know that all opulent, beautiful, and glorious creations spring from but a spark of my splendor. But what need is there, Arjuna, for all this detailed knowledge? With a single fragment of myself, I pervade and support this entire universe. And we're going to look at the last two verses first. So here Krishna has been describing either, again, how he's the essence of everything, or he's taking some categories of things, like among all fishes, I am a shark. And he's saying how, I, how the best represents some of his opulence. And then he says that all opulent, beautiful, and glorious creations spring from but a spark of my splendor. So we can just have some idea of how wonderful Krishna is. Like the, just like the, the beautiful skies or attractive plants or someone is uh, intelligent or creative or strong or whatever. And that's just a tiny spark of Krishna's potency. We're so attracted to all of these things. Why are we attracted to all these things? Why are we attracted to someone's strength or someone's intelligence or something beautiful or something whatever? Why are we attracted? Because hmm? it comes from Krishna. Now, why are people going to go to an aquarium and look at the sharks? It reminds us a little bit of Krishna. So just imagine how attracted we can be to Krishna. That's the point. And if we see everything in relationship to Krishna, then what we'll be attracted to is Krishna. If we look at the beautiful sunset and we think, oh, I want to enjoy the sunset, that's Maya. But if we think how wonderful Krishna is, that's Krishna consciousness. And Prabhupada says we can understand something of God's psychology by looking at our own psychology. So I had an ex experience not too long ago where one gentleman offered to help me with my books. He said that he could help me doing layout. So he took us and showed a, us a book that he had laid out. And he said, I don't use regular layout software. I don't know if any of you are familiar, but there's things like InDesign. And he said, I don't use those programs. He said, I use, I think it's called Latex. I use the program that underlies those, just the code. He said, here, let me show you that. Now, normally, if you look at someone's layout, they might show you a, a template with squares and circles and different pictures on it. Do you understand what I'm talking about? You lay out a book. So when you, when you lay out a book like this, you're going to put this in this square and this over here. There's a, a design, how you've done it. There's a design to it. You're not just throwing the text on the page. You're putting it in, in certain places, like you have your, your posters up. You, know, you have to decide what artwork to use, where to put different things. So normally, if I was going to show to you how I've done that, I'd show you a, a picture of the page. But he didn't show us that. He showed us lines of computer code. Mm -hmm. He just showed us, you know, x a smash equals this. I couldn't understand it at all. I might as well be looking at Greek. But he was very enthused to show this to us. Here's my layout. And I thought, we're all like that. If we've created something, we want to show it to other people. We want some appreciation. Now, really, I, I had no capability of appreciating it. I didn't understand it. But still, I said, wow, that's really nice. <laughs> so Krishna's the same way. 
He's exactly the same way. We cook something, we want people to eat it. We want people to say, oh, this is really good. Isn't it? Whatever we create. So Krishna wants us to look at everything, even in this world, and see his hand and appreciate him. However, if we see the things in this world and say, oh, look how intelligent that person is, and don't give the credit to Krishna, that's not very pleasing. If, I just, if I'm just appreciating the nice cooking, but I don't appreciate the cook, that's not so pleasing. Especially if I just think, oh, I'm just going to take this stuff. Uh, very nice. There's very nice food here. Let me just put it in my pockets and go out the door. And that wouldn't be very pleasing. Then Krishna says, he's talking about an attitude here. And then he says, what need is there, Arjuna, for all this detailed knowledge? Kim janet Arjuna. You don't, you don't need to know all this detailed knowledge. So this is a very important point for preachers. And something that I teach in detail when I teach a seminar on how to teach and preach. We should always be telling people what's important and what's not important. As a teacher, you need to do several things. You need to, first of all, go through all the everything you want to teach and say, what's my goal here? What's my purpose? Why am I teaching this? What is the minimum that the people I'm teaching need to know in order for me to say, yes, they've mastered this material? Now, that will depend on your audience. Just like we're going to go this morning to a college, and we have, what, an hour and a half? About an hour and a half. So in one and a half hours with people who know a small amount or relatively nothing about Krishna consciousness and are interested in chanting, the first thing we have to think is, what is the most essential thing that I want those people to know? so that I can walk away saying, yes, I've done my job as a teacher. My job as a teacher is if everybody in my class gets a certain minimum of information when I'm done. My job as a teacher is not done just because I have taught. My job as a teacher is done if you have learned. And I have to decide, my job as a teacher is to look at everything I could possibly teach, in this case about chanting, in this case Krishna about his opulences. Because remember Arjuna said, I want to know about your opulences. Okay, what's the most important thing that I want my students to walk out of that class knowing and keeping long-term, not just knowing for five minutes, but knowing, knowing? And then I have to look through all the possible material. I mean, how much material do we have on chanting? A lot. How much material does Krishna have on his opulences? Whoa. It's unlimited, right? So he has unlimited possible teaching material on his opulences, which is what Arjuna asked him about. So then you decide, well, to accomplish my goal, what are the most important things that I can present? I've got this much time. I've got this particular audience. In order to achieve my goal, what, what's the most important kind of information or what's the most important sort of experiences I want someone to have? We're going to go now to the next chapter. Krishna's going to go from just giving information to giving a pretty amazing experience to Arjuna. Where Arjuna's not just going to have heard about his opulence, he's going to see them and feel them and experience them, which is going to be a very overpowering 
experience for our dear Arjuna, who says, okay, enough already. <laughs> Let's just go back to being friends. So what sort of information, what kind of experiences are likely to get people to learn? And then another thing is that, well, how are we going to know whether or not our students have learned what we want them to know? We give some kind of test. We give some kind of test. Now, the test should be, if we're a good teacher, the test should be what's the most important. And not all teachers do this, do they? Some teachers put on the test every single picky, we say it in America, picky thing, every detail. I had a history teacher like this in secondary school. Oh my God. We, you never had, you had no idea what was going to be on the test. No idea at all. She could ask you just the most obscure, irrelevant, unimportant details. Now, when people do that, they're thinking that if they test you on all of the unimportant things, that will force you to learn everything. That's, what, that's their thinking. I'm not going to tell you what's important. I'm not going to tell you what's unimportant. And anything might be on the test. And that way you have to learn everything. I'd like to ask you, does that work? Are you able to remember everything? When you have a teacher who might test you on anything and everything, what happens after that test? It's all gone. You remember how much? Generally, almost nothing. You've tried to cram your brain full of all the information, and you know you, you tried to hold it in there for the test, and then as soon as the test is over, you forget it. So a good teacher doesn't do that. And we'll see Krishna here is modeling how to be a good teacher. He's saying, okay, these are some of the most important, but you know, none of this stuff I told you is important. So none of the stuff I told you, I just told you it was very important. You asked me, so I told you the most important, you know, some of the prime aspects, but this is not what's important. This is not what's going to be on the test. And you might say, well, why should you teach anything that's not going to be on the test? Why don't you only teach what's going to be on the test? All right destroy some doubts because Krishna already told us in the 8th chapter what's going to be on the test what's going to be on the test yes what do you remember at the time of death he already told us that he already told us the most important thing is think of me what your bhava is yes to help us do that so he's giving us additional information which is not so important by itself but which will help us remember him. So on the final test, no one's going to say, okay, among poets, who's Krishna? Mm -hmm. uh, 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 <laughs> yes, eight. Back to Godhead. What's Krishna among mountains? <laughs> which mountain represents Krishna? Come on. <laughs> Himalayas. No, that was immovable things. It was Meru. Wrong. Another birth. No, it's not that this is not, these details are not important. But they will help you to achieve what's actually important. So, this is what a good teacher does. A good teacher says, 
hey folks, this is what's really important. You explicitly, directly, don't let your students guess what's important. You tell them, this is what's important. This is what you have to know. And this stuff is helpful. And this stuff is interesting. And this stuff you might be interested in, if you want. So we directly say that. And we spend most of our time and energy going over what's important until our students know it. And this is why we see Krishna's repeating the same themes over and over and over again. Everyone knows repetition works. That's one of the principles of advertising. If you see things often enough, you'll know it. And we find that Srila Prabhupada also repeated certain things over and over and over again. If you listen to Srila Prabhupada's lectures, you'll find that there are certain things he says over and over and over and over again. You'll also find that there are many, many things in Srila Prabhupada's books that he rarely talks about in any of his lectures. Very rarely. I mean, there, there's, there's some difference between Prabhupada's purports and Prabhupada's books. Like. Prabhupada's uh, lectures, he sticks to things like, you're not the body, you should accept a guru, God's a person. Those are certain themes that he presents over and over and over again. There's a lot of detailed knowledge that only in his purports. Rarely, if ever, will he talk about them in a class. And even in Prabhupada's purports, there are certain themes that he's repeating over and over and over and over and over again. And he's saying, this is what's really important. This is what's really important. Rupa Goswami is giving, these are 64 items of devotional service. Among all of them, three are the most important. Among all of them, five is the most powerful. So this is the teaching method of God himself and of the acharyas. All right. Now, having said that these details are not important to remember in and of themselves, but they are very helpful. Uh, they can be helpful in their specifics, and they're also helpful in general in terms of our being able to meditate on Krishna in our everyday life. All right. Let's go through and starting with text one. So just like the our we the soul are animating this body, so in the same way Krishna is the soul of the universe. The universe is really like a big body that Krishna is animating. Also, super soul, the word super soul. Uh, means that he's the soul of, of us, the soul of the soul. Uh, we could mention, actually I mentioned this briefly. So there's a description in the Bhagavatam of creation of the universe. Of course, all of the elements are eternal, but the universe is periodically manifest and unmanifested. And there's different accounts of the creation. There's the primary creation of all of the material energy, and then there's the creation of this particular universe, which is called the secondary creation. Then there's also a creation that happens in every day of Lord Brahma. Uh, but first the Lord expands as Mahavishnu, our Karunadakashaya Vishnu. He's lying in the causal ocean, which is living water. It's not water like we have here. There's, it's just matter. And from there, he's lying in a yogic trance, and in his dream, he's manifesting just like when we breathe, little microbes 
come out of our mouth and out of our, the pores of our skin, little universes really of, of microscopic entities. So from the Lord's pores come out whole universes. And the scientists also say that our universe is gradually expanding and then contracting. So that's the description given that the universes get bigger and then after the midway into the creation, they start contracting and going back into the body of the Lord. And the scientists say that we're in the contracting phase and also according to Bhagavatam, we're at the beginning of the contracting phase. Lord Brahma is about 51 years old and he lives for 100 years. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, in each universe, there's Garbhadakshay Vishnu. In each universe, there's water at the bottom of the universe, which is also spiritual water. The Lord is again lying there, and from his navel comes a lotus on which Brahma is born. And then the Lord again expands this Kshiradakshay Vishnu. Kshira means milk. Within each universe, there's a spiritual planet, a Vaikuntha planet, which is called Swethidweep, the white planet. And the Lord, as Kshiradakshay Vishnu, lives there. And that it is that manifestation of the Lord that is the super soul that is all pervading within the universe. So a beginning and middle and end of all things. At the end of the universe everything again goes back into the body of the Lord. So one of the four main verses of Bhagavatam is Krishna said, I existed before the creation. During the creation there's really nothing but me and after the creation everything again goes into me. Text 21. Oh, so many places Krishna says he's the sun and the moon says it again in the 15th chapter and 7th chapter and we hear the sun and the moon also in the 11th chapter are described as Krishna's eyes yes when Vamanev showed his universal form also it said the sun and the moon were his eyes and it said that his opening and closing of the eyelids were day and night when he opened his eyes it was day when he closed his eyes so of course the only way we can see is because there's a sun and a moon Without the sun, we couldn't see. So I have my light bulbs. We could analyze that the light from our light bulbs all comes directly or indirectly from the sun. If it's coming from fossil fuels, then fossil fuels are plants. And plants got their energy from the sun. And so ultimately, you know, even hydroelectric power, what's evaporating the water? The sun. So ultimately, we can't, without Krishna seeing, in other words, without Krishna first seeing, I cannot see. Of course, it's interesting that Krishna's eyes give out light. My eyes need to take in light, and Krishna's eyes give out light. Um, Prabhupada talks about the stars shining with their own light. Uh, There's uh, the stars shining with reflective light. In Mahabharata, it also describes sometimes that the stars have their own light. And if if you're really into this, Sadhabhuta's book, Mysteries of the Sacred Universe, you can look up the stars and light in the index and get into that some more if you're of scientific bent. All right, in text 22, it says that of all the senses, I am the mind. Because of all of the senses, the mind is the most difficult to control. Uh, you, can, you can fast for a day. <laughs> you can be celibate for a lifetime. Right? But controlling the mind for five minutes is a tough job. <laughs> That's a really, really tough job. You know, you're focused on something and all of a sudden you're in someplace else. <laughs> How did I get here? You know, and you try to bring it back and it just goes on, goes where it's going to go. Uh, living beings, I am the living force, consciousness. Uh, this also that we ourselves are part of Krishna. We are part of Krishna. We're not Krishna, but we are Krishna, both. 
simultaneously. So Krishna is, is our own living force. Our own existence is also Krishna. I'm not Krishna in the sense that I'm never going to be, you know, all-pervading and all-powerful. But yet I'm part of him. And no, that doesn't fully make sense. That's why we call it achincha, inconceivable. It's just like, how can I be Krishna but not Krishna, huh? I don't get that. <laughs> we think either I'm, either I'm one with Krishna or I'm separate from Krishna. So different religious systems usually teach one or the other. Either they teach, yes, we're all one, or no, we're totally separate. There's God and us. So we say it's both true. We are all one, and we are all separate. Both of those are equally eternally true, which makes your head spin, so we call it a chincha. But without that philosophy, we can't engage everything in Krishna's service. If everything's only all one, what's the question of service? How can I serve? How can I give you something if the thing I'm giving you is you and I'm you? But if we're completely separate, also, how can I engage things in Krishna's service? They have nothing to do with him. If you're going to engage me in my service, it has to be things that I have a right to get service from. You can't go steal something from somebody across the street and say, I'm going to use that for a meal. So if things are disconnected from Krishna, how can you use them in his service? If this is a world run by the devil and everything is evil, what is the connection? So because there's oneness, therefore, there can be relationship. People marry other people, at least for now. Who knows what will happen in 20 years? <laughs> but there has to be some oneness. There has to be some oneness of species. You can have some degree of a relationship with someone of another species, but it's a little limited. You know, your idea of the relationship you have with the dog and the dog's idea of the relationship it has with you are not the same. There has to be some oneness. At the same time, there has to be some difference. Otherwise, how can there be relationship? How much relationship can I have with myself? You know, it's a little limited. Okay. Uh, this also, that there's a difference between matter and spirit. Um, this is a, a long discussion, but why are we opposed to the Darwinian idea of evolution? The Christians simply say that the... Well, okay, let's go to what the evolutionists say. The evolutionists say that if you make matter complicated enough, it will become alive. That the only difference between matter and life is how complicated it is. Now, the Christians say there's no way you can make matter complicated enough for there to be life by chance. Does that, are you following me? So the evolutionists are saying if you take a computer and make it complicated enough, it will become alive. It will become aware of itself. And that sounds awfully funny, but there are a lot of scientists right now working on trying to do that. Some very intelligent and educated people are working on trying to do that. The Christians say, no, that can't be the case because a computer is made by an intelligent person. And little bits of plastic and glass and metal are not going to join together of their own accord to make even a simple computer, what to speak of a complicated one. They're not even going to get joined together to make a, a gold ring. You know, the gold in the planet is not going to create a ring, which is pretty simple compared to my watch, without some intelligence. You know, if an archaeologist digs up a ring, they're not going to think it just appeared there. So the Christians say that, yes, it's true, 
that very complicated matter will become alive, but that has to be done by an intelligent being. And therefore, evolution cannot be true. And what we say is that no matter how complicated matter is, it will never become alive. And it's not that God is designing matter to be very complicated and then it becomes alive. That's not what's going on. That life is eternal. That, that life does not come into being just because there's a complicated arrangement of matter. So no matter how nice of an apartment you make, and how, how nice of a flat you make, you know, it's not going to all of a sudden have people pop out of the rug. Now, if it's a very nice place, somebody may move in. But the flat doesn't create the people. Yes. So what's the difference between the Christian view and our view? So. No. The Christian view is if you, yes, a very complicated computer can become alive, but a complicated computer has to be created by an intelligent person. We say a complicated computer will never become alive, that life is something different from matter. We, we agree that it takes a very intelligent being to create a body that facilitates life. But we say that the body is not creating the life. Life is separate. Otherwise, Prabhupada makes the argument, you could take all the ingredients from a body, it wouldn't become alive. That's the Frankenstein story. You all heard of the, the Frankenstein story? Some scientist takes different parts of a body and puts them together and gives it an electric shock and it comes to life. So that's not a fact. No matter how complicated of a machine you make, it's not going to be alive. It, 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 the machine is different. It's something different from life. And what we're saying is that life is never created. The Christians are saying life is created. Christians, Jews, Muslims. They say life is created. They say that before our, the conception in our mother's womb, we didn't exist. That when you put together the sperm and the egg, then we come into existence. And before that, we, didn't, we weren't here. Now, they're saying that only God can create a sperm and an egg and create the process of fertilization, etc. We agree with that. But we don't agree that the sperm and the egg create us or create any living that all living beings are eternal. So that's quite a bit. So we, we agree with a lot of their arguments, but not we, we're saying something that's in addition to that. I guess I also mentioned that there's two parts to evolution, which often confuses people. And the first part of evolution is that matter creates life, that complicated matter creates life. The second part of evolution is that one kind of body has children that turn, have another kind of body, and they have children that have another kind of body. And therefore, we get from one cell to human beings. So those are two very different parts of evolution. Now, the first part is out-and-out out atheistic, to say that matter by itself can create life without an intelligent being. The second part is not out-and-out out atheistic to say that lizards could give birth to birds is not intrinsically atheistic. It could be atheistic, and it could not be atheistic. Does that make sense to you? Do you all under, are you all following what I'm saying? If I say that, that, that dead matter 
can become alive by chance without any intelligence, that argument must be atheist. But if I say that lizards can give birth to birds, that may or may not be atheistic. I could say that that's the way God arranged things. So therefore, there are many religious people not understanding the first part of evolution say, well, maybe, you know, maybe that's how God did things. Maybe there was a God-engineered evolution. But if we think of why is the second part of evolution taught at all, what is the point of saying that, bird, that lizards gave birth to birds and fish gave birth to lizards? I don't know where plants fit in there. Why do they say that? Because they're saying, again, that matter became alive. Now, all the scientists know that the chances of matter combining into something as complicated as a living cell are practically zero. There's almost no chance. So there's almost no chance of something. Then are you going to suggest it happened more than once? Even for it to happen once is practically impossible. So they're going to say one time, somehow or other, matter became alive. And people who don't really know the science think, well, maybe that's possible for it to happen once. But if the scientist said, by chance, there was a soup of chemicals and an oak tree came out of it and a giraffe came out of it and a person came out of it, would anybody believe them? They don't think so. But if they say one living cell came out of it, you say, well, maybe, if you don't really know. So then how do we get oak trees and people and orangutans and kangaroos? How, how are you going to get that from some ch one chance event? Well, they'd have to turn into all those different things. The cell would have to become people and oak trees and giraffes and elephants and lizards and whales. Does that make do you all under, are you all following what I'm saying? Are you understanding what I'm saying? So the evolutionists say matter became alive. And that happened one time with a very simple cell. Well, then the next question is, well, how did we get lizards and rabbits and giraffes? And they say, well, that one cell turned into all those things. So the second part of evolution, although by itself it's not atheistic, it's necessary to support the atheistic part. If you don't say one species turned into another, then no one's going to believe that all the species came from one chance. So our answer to the first part is that, first of all, matter cannot become so complicated without intelligence, which is the same argument the Christians have. And second of all, that matter and life are two different things. That no matter how complicated you make matter, it will never become alive. That's our answer to the first part. Our answer to the second part is, sure, it's entirely possible that God could have arranged the world so that lizards gave birth to birds. He could have arranged a world like that. We have no problem with saying that that is possible. However, that's not the way it's described in the scriptures, first of all. That's not what we experience. We experience that species can only give birth to members of their own species. And there's just, there's basically no evidence for it. And how come there's no touch to that? You tell me. Why are they attached to it? Hmm? Yeah. First of all, they're denying God. And then if human beings are the top 
species, then who are the top human beings? Who are the top human beings? The scientists! They're setting themselves up as, a, as the priests of society. They're basically teaching a religion. They're teaching, you know, what are they answering the main questions that religion answers? Who am I? Where did life come from? What is the purpose of life? Why do we do what we do? Why does anything exist? Why is there suffering? I mean, all the questions that religion is supposed to answer, they're answered. And they're the big gurus. They're the big acharyas. And unless there's some other life out on another planet, then they're the top anything that exists anywhere. I should say that what's, uh, what's interesting about evolution is that different scientists are in different fields. You know, you're not just a scientist. You're a microbiologist, or you're a paleontologist, or you're a geologist. And just like sometimes very sick people they go to one doctor for their liver and one doctor for their, you know, neurology and another doctor for this and another doctor for that. And the doctors never get together and find out what's wrong with the person. Some very sick people, you know, they're, they're seeing 20 different specialists. And there's a, some organization in America where they take some of these cases and try to look at everything together. But in evolution, it's also like that. There's different scientists studying different aspects. And what many of them will say is, we know that in our particular field of science, the evidence for evolution is very weak. But they're assuming that there's stronger evidence in other fields. And also the way that it is right now is if you say anything publicly against evolution, you'll lose your job. They're basically controlling the flow of information through money. Money and position. You know, it's very hard to have a position in a university or any, any kind, which again is money, money and status. Which is why Brahmins have to be independent. Independent and willing to live in poverty. A real Brahmana should be willing, not that a Brahmana has to live in poverty, but a real Brahmana should be willing to live in poverty rather than compromise the truth. And if a Brahmin is willing to compromise the truth for status and money, then they're not fully the Brahmana. They may be doing the work of a Brahmana, but they don't have the qualities of a Brahmana. Satria will, sa will sacrifice truth for status, and a Vaishya will, will sacrifice truth for money. But a Brahmana should be willing to speak the truth, even if they lose status and money. That's a very easy thing to say. That's a very, very difficult thing to do. That's a very difficult thing to do. That's very easy to say. We will, we will all be put some time, I pretty much promise you, that all of us will be put some time in a situation where we know that if we say the truth about something, that we may lose our position and our means of livelihood. And speaking the truth in such a circumstance is not an easy thing. All right. I've said that already. Okay, 24. So... Just like Indra is the chief of the demigods, his priest, Brahaspati, is the chief of the priests, the chief of the gurus. Partike is the son of Lord Shiva. 
He is the general of the demigods. And the ocean, the ocean is thus like Krishna, Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnamidam You take something complete away from Krishna, he's still complete. You add something complete to Krishna, he's still complete. So the ocean is like that. The rivers are pouring into the ocean, the Amazon, the Ganges. They're pouring into the ocean, the Nile River, and the ocean doesn't get any bigger. And the sun is evaporating water from the ocean, and the ocean doesn't get any smaller. It stays complete. So this is something to meditate on. Do we see the ocean around here? At least parts of it. We meditate on how this is Krishna. Or it's not described here, it's described in the Bhagavatam that the ocean tides are imitating the breathing of the incarnation of Krishna, Kurma, as a turtle. So at least at the farm in Auckland, there's a, a tide pool. Right? When there's high tide, it's full of water. When there's low tide, it's all mud. You've all seen that, right? So you see that you can remember how Krishna says he's the ocean, how the tides are like the breathing of Kurma. Okay. So looking at Meru and the Himalayas. So Meru is a great mountain, but Meru is the uh, churn of the universe, so it sometimes moves, whereas the Himalayas don't move. And uh, vibrations I am the transcendental Om. So Om, of course, is composed of A, U, and Um. And Jiva Goswami says A represents Krishna, which Krishna says later in this chapter. He says, I am the letter A. I know in English it looks like the letter A. It is not the letter A. It is the letter A. And Prabhupada says in the purport that no sound can be made without the sound A. And in Sanskrit, the sound A is the sound you make without your tongue and your lips and your teeth. It's A. And it's the basis of all sound. So A represents Krishna, U is Radharani, Krishna's energy, and M is the living entities. So Krishna, his internal energy, and the living entities comprise Om. And although many times impersonalists chant Om, thinking that it just represents Krishna's all-pervading energy, actually we also chant Om. <laughs> many times, many of our mantras and prayers we chant Om. And one can chant Om also in the mood of service. I, the living entity, as M, am serving A, U, am serving Radha and Krishna. Now it's interesting, he says here, that Yajnanam Japa, Japa Yajnosmi, that of all sacrifices, I am Japa. Now we read a very interesting purport. demigods talking to Krishna about sacrifices when he comes for a sacrifice and I th- think no, I don't remember where it is alright, some place where there's a sacrifice in the Bhagavatam and the demigods are talking to Lord Vishnu about sacrifice and Prabhupada, if their demigods are saying there the sacrificial pots are you the butter is you, the priests are you every element of the sacrifice is actually you I was reading it recently. I gave a class on it recently, somewhere. I don't remember where. I don't remember what part of the Bible tells because I don't remember where I gave it. Anyway, Prabhupada says there in that purport that everything is Krishna or Krishna's energy. And every part of the sacrifice is either Krishna or his energy. And therefore, when you say Hare Krishna, which is Krishna and his energy, you have all the ingredients of sacrifice. 
right? That one has pronouns. So everything that exists is Krishna and Hare, is Krishna and his energy. Uh, therefore, when you're saying Hare Krishna, that's full sacrifice. Also, when you're chanting Japa, what are you ultimately sacrificing? What are you offering? Yourself. And that's the greatest sacrifice. Because Krishna already has everything. Or as Rukmini says to him, you don't really have everything, you are everything. Because Krishna tells Rukmini he's penniless. And Rukmini says, well, right, you can say you don't own anything because you are everything. But there's something he doesn't have. He has it indirectly. Just like the government, does the government have service and surrender from the people in jail? Sort of. But not willingly. The people in jail, they're following the rules of the government, sort of. Even in jail, if they can break the government laws, they will. People in jail do buy and sell drugs and stuff like that. Sometimes they kill each other in jail. So the people in jail are following the government laws by force. The government has their obedience by force. So Krishna has our obedience right now, but it's by force. We're being forced to follow the laws of nature. We're not voluntarily saying, yes, I agree to get sick. I agree to get old. I agree that if I fall on the stairs, I'm going to crack my head open. You know, We're not really agreeing to that. We're being forced. So what Krishna doesn't have is our willing cooperation. Krishna has our cooperation, but he doesn't have our willing cooperation. So that is something we can actually sacrifice, isn't it? Everything else we can sacrifice, he already has. Now, when, you're, when we're offering food as a sacrifice, he says those are released from all kinds of sins because they offer food as sacrifice. When we're offering the food as a sacrifice, he already has that food. It's already him. But he doesn't have my love. He doesn't have my willing cooperation. So it's the greatest sacrifice. Other reasons we could also say, but we'll say that for now. And if we had more time, we would talk more about Java. Okay, text 26. Uh, banyan tree. Who here has ever seen a banyan tree? Picture. Who has seen a real banyan? It's, it's amazing, isn't it? Have you seen a big one? What? In Hawaii. Pretty amazing trees. You can't figure out where they start and where they end once they're big enough. And they're, they're very tall and they're also very broad. They just take over everything. Of course, they live for a very, 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 very long time. They're pretty incredible. Pretty incredible trees. And the de- even the demons respect Narada. Chicharata is the Gantarva that taught Arjuna how to sing. And Arjuna used that in his year of incognito exile. And Kapila, every time Kapila is mentioned, Prabhupada takes great pains to tell us that there's more than one Kapila. <laughs> I, I think almost every time Prabhupada mentions Kapila, he makes that point. He said there's more than one person named Kapila, and one of them's an atheist. Okay, Uchishrava and Iravata were born from nectar. There was a time that the demons were winning and Lord Vishnu told the demigods, why don't you make friends with the demons? Sometimes you do that. 
make friends with your enemies and share nectar together. Of course, only the demigods got the nectar. But there were creatures and personalities that came out of the nectar. And one of them was this horse and one of them was this elephant. This elephant is Lord Indra's mount. And among men, I am the monarch. Now, we could talk for a long time about among men, I am the monarch. Basically, that someone who's in a position of authority, someone who has what we can call positional authority, they have authority because of their position, to some extent represent Krishna. So how do we deal with bad authorities? Now, see, that's easy to understand if you're in the position of authority. Then, wait a minute, I'm supposed to represent Krishna. I'm supposed to be teaching people what Krishna would want me to teach them. I'm supposed to be dealing with Krishna the way Krishna, dealing with people the way Krishna would want me to deal with them. That's easy to understand. But it's difficult to understand when I'm in the position of a subordinate. How does my authority represent Krishna? Because I'll pretty much guarantee you that 99% of the authorities that you have are not going to be personally Krishna. And even if, even if you have some authorities who are perfected beings, they're still not Krishna. And Srila Prabhupada is not Krishna. When some devotees said that Prabhupada was Krishna, he threw them out of Iskand. That's a pretty funny story, actually. Well, not funny. But the, 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 some devotees had been minimizing Prabhupada's position. And Prabhupada, as, as penance, told them to take sannyas. So they took sannyas, they were new sannyasis. And they went to New Vrindavan for, I think it was Janmastami. And they started telling everyone that Prabhupada was actually God, that Prabhupada was Krishna. And everybody got very depressed. They said, you've been offending Prabhupada. You haven't been worshiping him enough. He's actually God. And when Prabhupada found out about it, he told the devotees there, throw them out. So they were driven to a bus station, put on a bus, and sent, I think, to Florida. And they didn't have any money. You know, devotees, especially then, didn't have any personal money at all. I think they had maybe 25 cents. And then they just got off this bus. What do you do? You know, and it was nighttime. They just walked down the road and found some trees and lay down under the trees. And they woke up in the morning and thought, we're kind of hungry. And I'm pretty sure it was some little child that walked across the road and gave him some bread and milk. Said, my mother saw you and thought you were hungry. They thought, wow, Krishna feeds us. Even when Prabhupada's throwing us out of this con, Krishna still feeds us. <laughs> Eventually they came back. <laughs> but, but anyway, uh, our authorities are not Krishna. And because they're not Krishna, they're not Krishna. They don't, they're not omniscient. They're not omnipotent. Uh, what to speak of uh, authority like Srila Prabhupada? What about just you know, our authorities, the head of the, you know, the person who's in charge of the loft? or the person you marry, you know, they're not going to be perfect. They're not going to be Krishna. But yet they're representing Krishna. So how do you do that? How do you see that? Very difficult. I'll tell you one thing that I've noticed is that all of us conditioned souls have a lot of desires basically to satisfy our mind and senses, although we may disguise that as our service. 
But if, if we're really honest, we'll see that our desires are, are very self-centered, even if they're so-called desires for souls. And we're not able to achieve many of our desires. Either we don't achieve them at all or we achieve them partially. Or there's some block to achieving our desires. And generally what we think is that whoever is our authority is that block. So a lot of our anger at Krishna and our envy at Krishna gets dumped on whoever is representing Krishna as our authority. And therefore you see children become very upset with their parents. You know, if only my parents would drive me to roller skating lessons. If only my parents would give me more money. If only my parents would buy me a pony. And that wives get very angry at their husbands. You know, if only my husband would buy a bigger car. If only he'd move to another place. If only he'd let me go to the festival. If only, you know, my husband would let me do this. Or we get very angry at our uh, leaders of temples. People tend to put a lot of anger on, on, on temple leaders. Or we get very angry at the GBC. You know, people get very angry at the government. Or we get very angry at our employer. And I, I'll tell you something. That anger is actually anger at Krishna. It's, it's really anger at Krishna. That's really who we're angry at. So I know that that doesn't always, it doesn't always seem like that, but that's the person that we're really angry at. But do our authorities make mistakes? Yeah. Of course they make mistakes. Now Prabhupada in the Ishopanishad defines a mistake when he talks about liberated persons don't have the problems of imperfect senses and illusion and making mistakes. Prabhupada talks there about a mistake as doing something that's sinful. I mean, even Prabhupada made mistakes in terms of, instead of, sewing, instead of saying, I'm going to New Vrindavan in West Virginia, he said, I'm going to New Virginia. So that's not what we mean when we say liberated souls don't make mistakes. And Prabhupada said even Krishna makes mistakes. He's looking at Radharani and he tries to milk a bull. <laughs> Where he says the gopis, they're running to Krishna and they, you know, they put their makeup on one eye and their earring, an earring only on one ear and they put their sari on upside down. They look like little children who dress themselves. So even the gopis are making mistakes. Or what was Radharani once was trying to churn butter in an empty pot. So those kind of mistakes even liberated persons make. Please don't think that just because someone's a liberated person that they're not going to make those kind of mistakes. Prabhupada said, there's no utopia, even in the spiritual world, people are making those kind of mistakes. Liberated souls don't accidentally commit sin, like a conditioned soul does. But if our authorities who are conditioned souls, yes, they're going to make mistakes. They may sometimes give us an instruction where the results don't turn out to be very good. I can just tell you some things that I've done. Again, this is a whole discussion and we don't have time. I think, all right, if I were the authority, would I make mistakes? Why do I think my judgment is so much better than the person who's in authority? Okay, maybe I wouldn't make this mistake, but you know what? I'd make another one. And I might make, overall, I might make more mistakes, or I might make more serious mistakes. How do I know? How do I know that I'd be so much of a better authority than my authority? And also, sometimes... What appears to be a mistake on the part of the authority is not. I don't know the future. One thing that I, that I should have at least reasonable trust in is my authority's motives. It gets really scary if you can't trust your authority's motives. 
you know, if, if you find yourself under someone that you think is, is malicious and envious of you, that's, that's difficult. That happens sometimes. But generally, you know, the person in authority is trying to do the best that they can. They're trying to make the best decisions that they can. And again, who says that you would know any better? And who says that you're right? Maybe you're not right. And another thing is, yeah, maybe it's a mistake, and maybe you'll suffer. But ultimately, our suffering and happiness is due to whom? Ourselves. The other person is the instrument. You know, the tendency is, when something good comes, I tend to think, yes, I got this because I deserve it. And when bad comes, I think, oh, this is the result of the mistakes made by my authority. But just like, you know, the, whoever is like the gatekeeper for my sense gratification, that person can be the agent of some of my happiness and the agent of some of my distress, but my happiness and distress is already predestined. It's not that because my authority makes a mistake and tells me to move to Melbourne when I shouldn't it tells me to move to, you know, to do this and this and this, or we're not going to go to this festival. And because I didn't go to this festival, that's why I'm not advancing in Krishna consciousness. You know, my happiness and distress is going to come anyway, whether I go to the festival or not, or whether I live in Auckland or Melbourne or Wellington. My happiness and distress is already predestined. I'm not going to get more happiness or more distress than Krishna is going to give me according to my own work. So I don't know if that will help you. has been very helpful for me. I mean, sometimes I still get angry at the pe people that I think are the, the gatekeepers for my happiness. Why did you do that? Why did you say that? If only you had done something different, then I would have been happy. <laughs> but that's not a fact. And we are expected to respect people in positions of authority because they are representing Krishna, even if they are bad authorities. Even if they're evil authorities, we find that the devotees in Krishna's time, even though Kamsa was a very evil authority, still they were bringing taxes to the king. Right? Nandimaraj was bringing taxes to Kamsa, even though he was evil. All right. Of course, Jesus says a similar thing. When they ask him, who should we give our, who should, where should we pay taxes? And Prabhupada said, whose picture is on the coin? They said, Caesar's. And he said, give Caesar what's his. Why should you pay taxes? All right. Um, 28 is interesting, where Krishna says that he is Kandarpa, he is Cupid, of causes for procreation, I have Kandarpa. Earlier on in chapter 7, Krishna says that he is the act of sex when used for religious principles. Here he's saying he's a desire for sex when used for religious principles. So without sexual desire, sex cannot take place, at least from the man's point of view. Like Prabhupada says, without anger, Arjuna can't fight without anger. So sexual desire is not bad if it's for the purpose of having nice children. In fact, not only is it not bad, it's Krishna himself. So sometimes devotees have this idea that householders who have children should just be like stones going through some, some mechanical act. And this would be like saying, when you eat prasada, you know, don't taste it, don't chew it, just try not to get any enjoyment out of it. So no, Krishna wants us to enjoy the prasadam, even materially speaking. So he's saying here, of course, 
uh, desire for sex just for sense gratification. That's what Prabhupada is saying here. That is not Krishna. But the desire for sex for producing nice children is Krishna. And one can experience Krishna in them, just like we can experience Krishna in our singing in the kirtan, in our dancing in the kirtan, in our eating the prasadam. And this desire is very, it's very much like the desire to preach and bring people to Krishna consciousness. It really isn't a different desire. It's the same desire. Wanting to increase the family of devotees. Okay, of the many hooded nagas, I am Ananta. So we had in text 28, Krishna mentioned of serpents, I am Vasuki. So those are serpents with one head. And then 29 is serpents with more than one head. We don't usually see snakes with more than one head. Although in one of my grandkids' books, I was reading about how one zoo had a snake with more than one head. But the heads fought with each other and killed each other and the snake died. <laughs> that was pretty, I thought I would use that story to illustrate some philosophical thing at some point. Okay, I am Yama, the Lord of Death. So Yamaraj comes as Vidura, and he's friends with the Pandavas. And Prabhupada says, if you're a devotee, Yamaraj will be your friend. You don't have to worry about him. Actually, the devotees, there's really no such thing as death. Death is just of the body. As far as we, the soul, is concerned. There's no such thing as death. It doesn't exist. Death is really like walking from one room to another. Like a little baby. Like little Madhava at the farm. So he can't crawl yet. He can sit, but he can't crawl. And I'm sure that in his house, when his mother goes from one room to the next, he crawls. So before babies are mobile, when they're old enough to be aware of things, you know, about six months, they, they can see you're walking out the door. As far as they're concerned, when you walk out the door, you're gone. You, you've disappeared. Now, once they're, they can crawl, they can go out the door themselves, and they see that door leads to another room. So we, we think that someone's dead. They're gone. They're not gone. Or, you know, you're chatting with someone on the computer, and then they go offline. I can't communicate with them anymore. They're not gone. So there's no such thing as death. This just means walking from one room to another. So therefore, the devotees are not afraid of death. Prabhupada also comments how that for the devotee, Krishna can adjust when they die. Of course, we generally think of that, they'll have us live longer, but it can go the other way too. You might say you were destined to live for 80 years, but now you can come. Uh, here we see among the demons I am Prahlad sometimes devotees take birth from demons and sometimes demons take birth from devotees we can say generally parents take after the children generally but it's not absolutely okay? I mean children take after their parents thank you thank you yes thank you for asking okay Oh, I wanted to say something else about text 28. Among cows, I am the Surabi. And Prabhupada talks here about how Krishna is keeping all these cows in Goloka Vrindavan. And our wonderful idea of God that he's taken that he's a cowherd boy. Right? What does God do? So most religions have this idea that God just sits on a big throne with people around him going, Gloria, Gloria. And just says, go to heaven, go to hell, go to heaven, go to hell. Or we say that God, God is a village boy herding cows of course his father's the king of the village 
but he's not the king. Now, generally, religious people worship God as the king of kings. We worship God as a prince, not as a king. Of course, Krishna is also called the, the controller of Vrindavan. But he's a prince. And when you're the prince, you don't have the responsibility. Knights Nandamaraj's responsibility to take care of all the cows, which means Krishna can just play and have all his escapades. I could say more about Yamaraj, but we'll go on. Um, oh, one other thing I should say about Prahlad is, yes, Prahlad went to a demon school and preached to all of the demons, but please don't expect that if you have children and send them to a demon school, they're just going to preach to all the demons. Okay, in 32, oh, 31, that Rama is Parasaram, not Ramachandra. And in 32, again, he's saying, I am the beginning and the end and also the middle. And you can say, well, didn't he already say that? Right? Didn't Krishna already say that? Way back in 20. I am the beginning and the middle and the end of all beings and here of all things. So in 20, it was of all living beings and in 32, it's of all things one's matter and one's spirit. Of sciences, I am the spiritual science of the self, and among logicians, I am the conclusive truth. So sometimes when we argue with people, we're not interested in finding out the truth. Sometimes we're just interested in beating the other person over the head. I had the fortune or misfortune of being privy to an email conference like that recently, where there were these groups of devotees. I'm right. No, I'm right. No, I'm... And it just didn't matter what arguments were put forward on either side. It just didn't matter. You ever been in an argument like that? Where people just, they have what they believe and they have what their position is and that's all. And there's no conclusion, ever. So that's not the kind of logical argument that Krishna is. Krishna is a logical argument where you're really trying to find the truth. In order to do that, you have to have some humility. It's hard to admit you're wrong, especially when you've been saying, you know, I'm like this, I'm like this, and like, and you've been going on in front of all these devotees saying, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. It's very hard to say, whoops. Okay, we already talked about the Sanskrit letter A. Inexhaustible time. Krishna says over and over again in Bhagavad Gita how he's time. By the way, Prabhupada said that this time is Krishna's form as Shiva. Also, something interesting to think about is that there is no time in the spiritual world. There's no past, present, and future. And that time comes into existence when the material world is created and then it stops when the material world is dissolved. So what in the world is time? Something to think about. Also, time is experienced very differently by different living beings in different parts of this universe. Yeah, they do. They have a sequence of events. But there's no past, present, and future. Nobody ever ages. There are people in the spiritual world who are like 14 years, 3 months, and 2 and a half days. Forever. Forever. I can't explain that. I can describe it, but I can't explain it. You know, in conditioned life, one of the main things that's conditioning me is time. Therefore, to speak about a timeless place is inconceivable. 
I mean, I know even people who have out-of-body experiences talk about being in a timeless situation. Apparently, when he's on Earth, but it's not like that. That's more that Krishna's reciprocating with the desires of the devotees to see him in different ways. Because there's stories about how when Krishna's a baby, all of a sudden he assumes an adolescent form. There's stories like that in the Brahma Bhagavata Purana. How soon after Krishna was uh, was born, that he assumed an adolescent form, and Lord Brahma married him to Radharani. That there was a storm. Nandamaraj had baby Krishna out in a storm, and Radharani comes and says, "I'll take the baby for you, so you can take the cows back." And immediately Krishna assumes his Kishore form, and Lord Brahma comes and marries Radha and Krishna. There's a place in Vrindavan, Bandiravan, where that marriage took place. And then again, Krishna assumed the form of a baby. It's just play. It's not like he has a body that grows up in time. But how do you? You know, of course, when Krishna comes to this world, he appears to be acting within space and time. But if he's acting within space and time, how does your soda see herself inside Krishna's body? She didn't see a picture of herself. She saw herself inside Krishna's body. You know, we really can't, there's no way we will ever understand. And we've got, next week when we run to chapter 11, where Arjuna sees all space in one place and all time at one time. So how is there a sequence of events in the spiritual world and yet there's no past, present, or future? There's only the present. I don't think that's something one can understand in terms of Un, un, with the mind and intelligence understanding it like that. I think it's something that one can experience or not experience, but I don't think it's something that one can understand. I mean, we can, a little bit, you know, I can, have, I can fall asleep for five minutes and have a dream, and during the dream, a week goes by. Have things like that ever happened to you? Mm -hmm. That a long period, that the time you experience in dream is different from the actual waking time mm -hmm. that you've been asleep? Do you, you understand? You know, you fall asleep and you'll dream it's the next day. Did that ever happen to you? You dreamt you woke up and it was the next day and you did things. And when you actually woke up, you thought, what day is it? And maybe you were only sleeping for half an hour, but you dreamt the whole day went by. And in your dream, you experience that day as if it were a day. Haven't you all done that? Haven't you had a different experience of time when you're dreaming than the time that's actually happening? And it feels like that amount of time. There's a very nice article in, back, in the Back to Godhead uh, a couple years ago, I think, by um, Mataresh Prabhu about time. And I would recommend that you read that. And one of the things that I noted was that time is the only element that doesn't have any accompanying sense. Like ether, you can tell there's ether from the ear. You can tell there's air from the touch. You can tell there's fire from the eyes. You can tell there's water from the taste. You can tell there's earth from the smell, from all. But time, we, just know, we, can't, we have no sense that allows us to connect with time, to perceive time. Basically, what we call time 
is the movement of one object in relationship to the movement of another object. That's what we call it. And the, you know, the rate of disintegration, what we call time. Anyway, interesting article. Okay, I'm all devouring death, so everybody sees Krishna. Prabhupada, in talking about this verse, said, no one can say they have not seen God. Everybody has seen God. It's just how you're seeing him. And this is a very nice verse for people who accuse the Krishna consciousness movement of being anti-women. What nice qualities here, Prabhupada says, are the qualities of women. I had one university professor who was a real heavy-duty feminist. Whoa. She hated men. Hated or she'd had a bad experience. Mm-hmm. Most people who hate men or who hate women had some bad experience. So she'd had two children and then the man just left and she had to raise the two kids by herself, etc., etc. Whoa. And it was intense. It wasn't it wasn't like a mild thing. It was really, really, really intense. And she was talking one time about, you know, religions and their ideas of women. And in one of my papers, I quoted this verse, and she was so happy. She wrote all these nice comments and read on my paper. I had no idea you had this view of women. So, of course, men can have these qualities too, even though they're feminine qualities. What's very nice is how Prabhupada explains here. He says that if after studying you can remember remember a subject matter, you have good memory, the ability not only to read many books but to understand them and apply them when necessary is intelligence. And then he says the ability to overcome unsteadiness is called steadfastness. And when one is fully qualified yet is humble and gentle, and when one is able to keep his balance both in sorrow and in the ecstasy of joy, he has the opulence called patience. So it reminds me of Gopi Parinidana Prabhu our Sanskrit scholar in Govardhan. So he's one of the most highly qualified devotees in the Hare Krishna movement, but he's very humble and gentle. You would never, ever, ever guess when meeting him how qualified he was. Mm-hmm. Never. You just, you just wouldn't guess. His, his demeanor, his way he deals, you know. You would never think this is one of the top scholars in the Hare Krishna movement. It wouldn't even occur to you. And, of course, to be equal poised in sorrow and joy. By the way, you can't be equal poised in sorrow if you're not also equal poised in joy. (laughs) I'm going to tolerate pain, and I'm going to enjoy the pleasures. Don't work. Okay, so November and December, because in India those are the harvest months. Gambling of cheats. So why is gambling cheating? And why is it the best kind of cheating? Right? I just had someone try to cheat me yesterday. Whoa. It was really unpleasant. So generally in in cheating, you're not agreeing to be cheated. Basically, this this guy contacted me over the internet and said, I have a friend who can do artwork for your books, and he'll do it at a cheap price in India. And I said, give me a sample. And then he just showed me something that he had downloaded from the internet. Right? So I wasn't agreeing to be cheated. Of course, Krishna's mercy, I didn't get cheated. I thought, he gave it to me awfully fast, and it's awfully good, and he's wanting an awfully low price. You know, it just didn't sound 
very good. I said, how can I contact this person? Oh, he doesn't have a computer. Well, if he doesn't have a computer, how did you send me the picture in two minutes? So I, my point is, I didn't agree to be cheated, but in gambling, everybody agrees to be cheated. You say, okay, everybody, let's all put in a dollar, and we'll roll a dice, and whoever gets the number right gets to take all the dollars. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine dollars. Wow, I put in a dollar, and I get back nine. And you all go, yes. Because each of you are thinking, if I put in a dollar, I can get back nine. So if I suggest that, you know that I'm trying to cheat you, right? I'm trying to take your dollar, and I'm not going to give you anything in exchange. That's cheating. Honest is, I take your dollar, and I give you something that's worth a dollar, right? That's honest. Cheating is, I take your dollar, and I give you something that's not worth a dollar. Or in the case of gambling, I give you nothing. Or I do give you something. I gambling, I give you the hope that you can cheat me. So I say, all right, let's get together, and I'm going to try to cheat you, and you also get the opportunity to cheat me. Now, isn't that exciting? As one devotee I know who got into gambling told me, yes, you're giving people something. You're giving them entertainment. I said, hmm, okay. I don't think you're giving them entertainment. Entertainment is, you know, I'm going to sing a song for you, and you can pay me for my CD. But it's a very clever form of cheating because people agree to it. People agree enthusiastically. When people go to the casinos, everybody knows that the casino must be making money. <laughs> Otherwise, they wouldn't exist. The casino cannot be losing money. It must be making money. That means the casino makes more money than the people who come to the casino. Has to. But people are agreeing to be cheated. Yes, I will go and be cheated. So therefore, it's Krishna, such a clever cheater. So Prabhupada says, Sir Krishna is the most clever of everything, even the most clever cheater. All right, this is such a wonderful thing of the splendid I am splendor. Whenever we see anything that's splendid, that represents Krishna. Victory, adventure, strength. Whenever we experience those things, we can think that's Krishna. Whatever strength we have, we all have some strength. That's Krishna. Whatever victory we achieve, whatever adventures we go on, that feeling of adventure is Krishna. That feeling of strength is Krishna. That feeling of victory, that's Krishna. When people go to their sporting events and they have their imitation ecstasies, that's what they're doing, you know. They're trying to imitate spiritual ecstasies. Yay! You know, jumping up and down like you do in Kirtan. What are they tasting? They're tasting Krishna. This idea of adventure, this idea of victory. Okay, this Vasudev refers here specifically to Lord Balaram. Ushna is Sukracharya, the priest for the demons. Uh, 38, very important. If you want to be victorious, the most important principle is morality. The most important principle is not being bigger or stronger or more intelligent. The most important principle is being immoral. So here Krishna is not saying the means justify the ends. Do the right thing, and you'll be victorious in the end. Sometimes when you do the right thing, yes, you will lose in the middle. It is true. 
But in the end, you'll be victorious. You'll have the only kind of victory that really counts. And a victory gained through immorality is not a very pleasurable victory. Secret things, I am silent. So you really want to keep something secret, then be silent. And Prabhupada says uh, something very interesting in this purport, and I've asked many, many devotees about it, and I've never got much of an answer, or I've got a variety of answers. So I'm just simply going to point it out. Prabhupada says here, among the confidential activities of hearing, thinking, and meditating, silence is most important because by silence one can make progress very quickly. Do you know what that means? We can discuss it. As I said, I've had many people give different opinions as to what that means, and I think all of us could sit here for two hours having a discussion on that one sentence, which would probably be a lot of fun, and maybe sometime we should do that. I mean, the, the most obvious interpretation is that Prabhupada often says that silence means not to talk nonsense, only to talk about Krishna. Uh, but I don't think that's the only explanation. Prabhupada said we should understand every verse from many angles and visions, and we should discuss his books threadbare. And I'm personally convinced there's probably a hundred different ways of understanding that sentence. And they're probably all nectar. Maybe sometime we can do that. Okay. All right. Questions, comments? We can do that for five minutes and we can listen to the rest of Kitamrita. Was this fun? <coughs> Anything anybody want to discuss? Yes? Um, you were talking about impurities and how, you know, they're all imperfect because they're not omniscient and they're not Christian. Mm. I think I'm understanding you correctly. So I, I hope I'm I hope I'm understanding you correctly. So I'm following this authority not because the authority's perfect, but because it's Krishna's instruction to follow this authority. Krishna's telling me. Krishna's going to be pleased if I follow my husband. Following your husband doesn't mean that, you know, you're a slave and he's the master. There should be some cooperation. I mean, I think any intelligent man is going to discuss things with his wife and not just order her about all the time. Uh, but still, the man wants to feel that he's in a position of authority or following whoever's in charge of the law or following who's ever in charge of the temple. Or, uh, I'm doing this to please Krishna. Not because this authority is perfect, but because Krishna will be happy if I follow. If I don't follow, then there's just going to be chaos. If everybody is going to say, no, I have a better idea, I'm going to do it this way, I have a better idea, I'm going to do it this way, then nothing can go forward. And I trust that, that, that if I do things to please Krishna, Krishna will take care of everything. That even if my authority makes a mistake, Krishna will adjust, and he does. Krishna can even use mistakes for good purposes. I mean, what about Maharaj Yudhisthira gambling? You know that story? So Duryodhan was cheating. Duryodhan and Shakuni was, were cheating. I don't know exactly how they were cheating, but they were you know, just like expert gamblers. They know how to pull whatever card they want out of the deck. 
you know, expert gamblers, sometimes there'll be a team of gamblers and they don't, you don't know they're a team and they're signaling each other in some way. So Duryodhan and Shakuni, they challenge Yudhisthira to a gambling match and the code of the, of the Kshatriyas, of the royalty, was you don't back down from a challenge. They had to be fearless. And he was a guest there through the Rastras. Through the Rastra was the king. Duryodhan was his son. He didn't feel it was proper etiquette to refuse, even though he knew that they were cheating. And that was their plan, Duryodhan's plan, to take away the Pandavas' kingdom. And Yudhisthira, though, Yudhisthira's a pure devotee. For various reasons of, of Krishna's desire and Krishna's lila, he became apparently bewildered by gambling. You know, when a person gambles and they lose, and they just think, if I play another game, then I'll win. If I play another game, then I'll win. If I play another game, then I'll win. And so Yudhisthira kept gambling and gambling and gambling and gambling and gambling. He ended up gambling away his kingdom. So, so many things. Anyway, then that was adjusted, and then there was another gambling match. And again he lost, and the Pandavas had to go into exile for 13 years. So the, the other four Pandava brothers and Yudhisthira's wife, Dropadi, his main wife, they weren't exactly very happy that Yudhisthira had done that. And they didn't think he did the right thing. They didn't agree with him. They said, you made a mistake. You did something wrong. And because of what you did wrong, we're all suffering. He was the emperor of the world. They followed him. They didn't criticize him in front of everybody else. They were mad. They were not just peaceful with this whole thing. They were upset. But they didn't criticize him in front of the whole assembly. And they went into exile. They didn't say, I'm not going into exile. It's your problem. You know, they did it. And they remained loyal to him. And they loved him. They did say to him, you did something wrong. And it was all, ultimately it was all Carter. Krishna had his own plan. That was how Krishna showed how evil Duryodhan was. Krishna wanted to show the difference between the Pandavas and the Kurus. And also, Krishna wanted to show the harm of gambling, and he used his devotee to do that. And the devotee makes himself available to Krishna. You can use me as you want. And sometimes Krishna uses a devotee to show what not to do. He does that. And there are so many things that happened as a result of that that were Krishna's desire. Krishna used it to advance all the Pandavas in devotional ecstasy and to facilitate his whole plan for the world. So the devotee sees like that. Now, of course, there are sometimes, and this is, you know, a, a, again, it's something you could talk about for months or years. You know, when do you refuse to follow? There are times when you're actually obligated to refuse to follow. Like Bali Maharaj, when his guru told him, don't give anything to Lord Vishnu, he said, I'm not listening to you. Too bad. You're my spiritual master, but sorry. God is in front of me, and he's asking for charity, and I told him I'd give it to him, and you can be my guru or not my guru. And sorry, my dear sir, I'm not listening to anything you tell me. And his guru said, then I curse you to lose all your opulence. He said, okay, fine, but I'm not going to listen to you. Or Bharat Maharaj, you know, his mother banished Lord Ramchandra to put Bharat on the throne. And Bharat comes back, and his mother said, 
okay, I've gotten rid of Ram and Lakshman and Sita. They're all in the forest. You become the king. He said, nothing doing. I'm not going to do that. He said, in fact, I reject you as my mother. And what kind of mother are you? He banishes your stepson just to get royal power. He said, I reject you. You know, Harandikashibu told Prahlad, worship me. And he said, no. Sorry, Dad. Oh, king of the atheists. <laughs> so there are times when one is supposed to refuse. Or the government told Haridas Thakur, you know, give up chanting Hare Krishna and just be a good Muslim. And he said, no. They said, well, then we'll beat you to death. And he said, it's okay. I'm going to keep chanting Hare Krishna. So where is the line? I don't think we can make some rule. I would say that in the normal course of events, you probably won't run into that kind of thing very often in your life. It's rare. It's not something that's going to come up once a week <laughs> just because your husband doesn't want to buy the car that you like. You know, that it's, or your town president tells you to go in the kitchen when you wanted to be on the altar. I mean, I talked to one woman once who was practically about to divorce her husband because he wouldn't let her go to a festival. I mean, you, you know, but to her it was, it was very important. So where is the line at which pleasing Krishna is saying no? Generally, we please Krishna by cooperating with our authorities, but there are times, there are times. The wives of the Brahmins, you know, they left, went to feed Krishna. The gopis just left. Their husbands, fathers, sons are saying, where are you going in the middle of the night? Bye-bye. And they left. And hey, you know, many of us did that too with our families. Not many of us had families who said, yes, join the Hare Krishna movement. My father was favorable, but my mother wasn't. And I'm supposed to obey my mother. Krishna says that later in the Bhagavad Gita. It's one of the austerities to obey your mother. I said No. There are times. Again, I don't think we can say, this is the rule when you can know when following your authority pleases Krishna and when disobeying your authority pleases Krishna. I don't, I don't think you can have some, okay, where do I get my, let's see, what does it say? When this happens, I follow, when this happens, I don't. I don't think it says that. that you can learn from everybody and that you should do good to everyone. You shouldn't want to exploit anyone. So the servant serves. The servant doesn't exploit. So we should try to serve everybody. And we should try to do good for everyone. And you can learn from everybody. Sometimes what you learn from, from someone is a negative thing. Sometimes you learn what not to do. But everyone has something to teach you. And not only every, not only every devotee, but every human being Every plant, every worm, every caterpillar has something you can learn. Prabhupada says that even if someone doesn't go to school just by studying nature, you can learn so much about Krishna, so much of philosophy. And we should do good to others. Sometimes the best way to serve someone is to stay away from them. I mean, seriously. Very seriously. Sometimes the best way to serve somebody is to have nothing to do with them. But it should be in the mood of service, not in the mood of, of, I don't like this person. 
But as soon as I think, you know, I'm the master, I should be served, people should think about my welfare. That's generally how we think. What about me? Who's going to feed me? Who's going to give me this? Who's going to give me that? Who's going to give me that? Everyone should learn something from me. Everybody should do things for me. Instead of, I, I can learn from everybody and I can serve everybody. It doesn't mean I follow everybody's orders, but I can learn from them. We'd go crazy if we tried to follow everybody's orders. Chanting, reading. Eventually, we start to wake up and we see the naked form of our material desires. We see, instead of Maya, we see what is not. We see, start seeing truth. We start seeing that wanting to be the center is painful. It doesn't give us what we want, and it's just, it's just pain. Nothing but pain. One hundred percent pain. So it takes a while to see that we're attached to it. Right? Yeah, you know, you see this. If somebody is attached to, you know, some relative or some friend who doesn't treat them very nicely. You see that? But they're attached. You know, some parents attached to some drug addicted kid who's stealing all their money. But they're attached. And you say, get this, you know, kick the kid out of your house. They often can't do it. It takes some time. So we've got this, you know, we're attached to this. Or people get attached to some pet. I give this example. Like people are attached to a pet that, you know, ready to kill them. Sometimes people get killed by their pets. They keep a pet tiger or a pet python. Or, you ever heard of people like that? Pet alligator. Right? All that. Yeah, people who have these, these pets who kill them. But if you say, this pet is dangerous, you should get rid of it. No, it's their pet. So we have to see. And I'm just thinking, uh, I'll give you this one example, and then we'll just listen to this, and then we'll stop. So when I was growing up, I was very attached to cats. My parents had a dog, which I didn't like very much. But I had a cat. I really liked my cat. And I remember when we lived at Gita Nagari, I used to watch the cats in the barn and think, oh, they're so cute. So when we moved to the Detroit Temple... They had some cats in the building. And one day, as I was walking through the temple, I saw a cat in the process of eating a rat. So the back half of the rat was sticking out of of the cat's mouth. And after that day, I had no interest in cats. Why? Because I, I saw what is the nature of a cat. I actually saw its nature. I saw it's not like it's some sweet, you know, purring, cuddly thing. It's a vicious, cruel creature. So that's we, we need to see our our material attachments like that. Right now we think they're very nice. We think we don't have them at all, that we're very spiritual. <laughs> you know, we, we think we think that all of our material attachments are nice spiritual things. They're not. So as we as we become purified, as we become purified, we start to see, oh I, I don't want this, it's disgusting. I want service. So that generally takes some time. Okay, let me play this.